special episode of the Batman Family Reunion. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Ken, and with me, as always, is my bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. How are you today, Sean? I am batastic because today we have a special guest at the Wayne Family Gardens, the Answer Man himself, Bob Rosakis. Hi, Bob, and welcome to the reunion. Hi, guys. It's nice to be here. Thanks for joining us, Bob. We appreciate you taking the time. We just wanted to have you on and talk a little bit about your career and, you know, as it relates to Batman Family and other things. So we thought we'd start at the beginning. Okay. Tell us about your secret origin. When you grew up, did you like comics? You know, all that kind of stuff. I started reading comics, I guess, when I was about five years old and Felix the Cat, Casper the Friendly Ghost and things like that. And I, the first Superman comic that I got was the Black Knight Super Sword, in that late 1958, I think. I guess I've been watching Superman on TV, and, and so it was like, okay. I don't think, I think when I read it, I, I didn't understand what invulnerable meant, you know? So the fact that Superman was getting cut by the sword was like, hmm, okay. I thought he wasn't supposed to be. Anyway, so I, I started reading Superman uh, and then some Batmans. I got, I think the second comic I got was the World's Finest. So it was Superman and Batman together. Went on from there. I would say in the 1961 or so, I started getting heavily into collecting the books and, and getting them on a regular basis. I started following the dates that they were coming out and figuring out that, oh, yeah, the last week of the month, Action and Adventure and Detective all came out. And where did you <laughs> buy them? Did you have a corner store, or a newsstand? Yeah, mom and pop candy store a couple of blocks away. When you got old enough, you could go there by yourself? Yeah, I, could, I would take the dog for a walk and we'd go up and... <laughs> But by, I would say 1962, I knew the comics were coming in on Tuesday afternoon. And so I'd show up about two o'clock figuring that, okay, maybe he opened the bundles by then. And if he hadn't, then I'd be like, well, I'll be back later. And then I'd come back in an hour and then I'd come back in another hour. And, you know, he'd finally, okay, I got to open the bundle. And I'd be taking him as he was opening them and we're taking out the pile. It was in a wire bound bundle. Yeah. Very and, cool. uh, so, oh, yeah, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. <laughs> Eventually, it got to the point where he had me. I would come in, he'd open the bundle, and I would put the stuff in the racks. Yeah, it's free labor. It's like, okay, the old issue of this has to come out. This one's going in. And it worked out nicely in that respect. I had my first letter in an issue of Adventure Comics in like 1963. I don't know why I was, I was looking in the, in the uh, encyclopedia and came across something called Monel Metal. I sent in a note and said, doesn't this sound like one of the members of the Legion? And they printed the letter. I started writing letters, I guess, heavily in, in uh, 1968, 1969 or so. Steadily writing. I must have written 500 or so letters yeah. and had somewhere about 130 of them published. So it was you know, basically a one in four publication. Yeah. Oh, here he is. Well, he, he seems to know how to write letters. So let's keep publishing his letters. <laughs> and that continued through your years in college? And when I was a, a, a senior in college, I thought it'd be nice to go and see if I could visit DC. So I called up and get the switchboard and I asked to talk to Julie Schwartz because he had been publishing a lot of my letters. And I was figuring it's like you call the White House and ask for the president. You never actually get the president, you know. So I wasn't going to get Julie. I was going to get somebody else who would, you know, just say, oh, well, yes, Mr. Schwartz is too busy. And Julie answered the phone. And I told him who I was. And I, I said, I'd like to come up and visit the office one day. And he said, OK, what day do you want to come? And I said, well, how about next Friday? And he's like, sure, come in at one o'clock. I'll be back from lunch. I was like, OK. 
That's cool. And he knew who you were from your letters. He knew who I was. Yeah, from the letters. So I came in and got a tour. This was they were still a they were at 909 Third Avenue at that point. And so they were like a third of the floor on 909. It was basically just the editorial offices and the production room and you know a couple of executive offices. That was it. Everybody else, though everybody else was a freelancer. Right, right. I think they had a couple of art tables in the production room. Sometimes somebody like Murphy Anderson or Neil Adams would be sitting there fixing a job or doing some spot stuff. And so I assume that led to, yeah, that led to getting a job there. Well, I came back another a second time because I was trying to sell Julie some story ideas, none of which he liked. <laughs> one of, the only one I remember is that Superman got an ulcer. <laughs> and he was like, no. <laughs> and Julie at the time shared his office with Nelson Bridwell, who was his assistant. And I knew Nelson was into trivia and puzzles and things. And I had been making up some, some crossword puzzles and word finds for a couple of fanzines. So I brought those with me to give to Nelson because I figured, all right, he'll get a kick out of these. So we're sitting there and, and Julie got a phone call. And so while he was on the phone, I, I said to Nelson, I said, you might like these. And Julie hangs up the phone and says, what's that? And he grabs them. And I said, well, they're puzzles I made up. And he says, stay right there. I was like, I'm not going to go anywhere. <laughs> he runs out of the office. He comes back a couple minutes later with Saul Harrison, who was then the vice president, production manager. And Saul says to me, could you make up puzzles just about Superman and just about Batman? And I said, sure. He said, okay, do that and we'll buy them. And I was like, okay. So I was armed with press type and a black felt-tip pen, basically, and graph paper, because there was no way to do it other than manually drawing the grid yeah. and then filling in the boxes. And the press type, you had to do a letter at a time. And so, I mean, doing a, a crossword puzzle where for, you know, I had to do the whole grid and then put the little numbers in, and then they made me a stat of it, and then I had to put the answers all in. So, <laughs> then the word find puzzle is just a giant grid of letters. So I did three Justice League, three Superman, three Batman, and came back like a week and a half later with all of them done. And I got paid $15 a page. Nice. The entire, you know, the entire package. It was a completed page. Yeah. So... But all of a sudden, I was a DC freelancer. There you go. And so that was just about the time they, they were just gearing up to do the 100-page Super Spectaculars. And that's what they wanted was filler pages to put in those. Yeah. So about a month later, I get a phone call. And it's uh, Saul's secretary, Mitch. And she says, Saul needs to talk to you. And I get on the phone. And he says, what do you know about Tarzan? And I said, actually, quite a bit. I, I at that point, I had been reading all of Burroughs. So not only Tarzan, but John, John Carter and the David Innes, the whole thing. He said, I need three puzzles, Tarzan puzzles by Monday. <laughs> this was, I think, Friday afternoon. I said, OK. <laughs> so I did a, a crossword puzzle, a, a word find and a maze. Oh, a maze. OK. Yeah. Yeah, the mazes were a lot easier because it was just basically <laughs> map out the grid on the paper and then draw the lines and make sure that they, they weren't where they weren't supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. And then the following Monday, I cut classes and went to D.C. to deliver these three pages. 
they were actually the first three that got published. They went in the Tarzan tabloid. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And it came out like two months later. And it was like, oh, they really were in a crunch for this stuff. <laughs> and at the time, I was graduating from college. And so I figured, what the heck? Let me see if I could get a job at DC. And so I, I went and asked Saul, and he hired me as an editorial assistant. And uh, one of the first jobs I had was answering the mail. And they had, used to have the, the prefab card that said, you know, thanks for writing and had pictures of the different characters on it. And he, he just gave me a big box of mail and said, answer these. So I, I said, what about ones that are from me? He says, you don't have to answer those. <laughs> <laughs> so I started answering them. And it, initially it was just, you put the name and address of the kid on it and, and thanks for writing. But then as I was reading them, some of them were asking questions. So I was like, well, I might as well put an answer to the question. So I'd roll the card into the typewriter and, you know, type, yeah, no, this was this or that was that or no white kryptonite only kills plants, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, was sending those off. At the same time, Michael Uslan was driving the comic mobile in central Jersey where he lived. But Michael had to go back to college at the beginning of August. So Saul decided that I would take over driving the comic mobile. I lived on Long Island. So we'll have a new market. You'll see what comes up. I mean, Saul's plan was to have comic mobiles everywhere. Michael had it easy. He was able to get permits to go to the beaches and the parks and in front of the schools. Not so on Long Island. I couldn't go near the beaches. I couldn't go near the parks. I couldn't go near the school. Couldn't go any place people actually congregated. I was limited to driving up and down the street, ringing a bell like the ice cream man. I did that near my house in, in uh, Elmont, where I grew up, uh, and a couple of other of the, the townships in Nassau and Suffolk County, and developed something of a regular route and also some regular customers. Okay. And so for some of those, they would ask for, oh, you know, I missed last month's issue of Commandy. Could you get me that? And it's like I'd go back to the office once a week to restock, and they had an entire bookcase in the library of the extras of everything and i'd be going through that pulling out one thing or another and you know one guy i think got like a whole run of, of issues of world's finest because he was missing like a year's worth and it was like oh they're all here i'll just bring them to him one day i was in the office this is one of the side things is and joe orlando walked down the hall and he looks in and he sees me pulling books out and putting them in a box and he goes running back down the hall and he says to, to Saul, somebody's robbing the library. Some kids in there stealing comics. So Saul comes back up with him, you know, like, oh, we're going to have to, you know, call the police. And he looks and he says, that's just Rizakis. Years later, I told Joe, you know, you, you tried to have me arrested. <laughs> the comic mobile only lasted till school started because then, of course, my customer base was no longer outside. And uh, so I went back in the office and that's when I became Julie's assistant, uh, working with Julie and Nelson and doing other general editorial assistant stuff. I would guess maybe six months after that, Julie gave me a shot at doing a first draft edit on the scripts or at least a read through and, you know, make suggestions. I wasn't really allowed to write anything on the script, but, you know, he'd read through it and say, well, you know, this could be better or that could be tighter and at the same time, I kept pitching him ideas. I bet he loved that. <laughs> well, after the Superman ulcer, it was like, <laughs> finally, I think he said to me at one point, he said, you just graduated college. Robin's in college. Come up with Robin plots. So I was like, okay, I can do that. 
so the first stories I, I sold were the Robin stories. The Christmas story and the others, yeah. The Christmas story, uh, the parking lot bandit. The parking lot bandit, yes. And that that was all based on the fact I was working part-time at a, at a local department store in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's how Dick Grayson got a job in the parking lot because I had one. Right, what you know. <laughs> <laughs> then with the Joker's daughter, when I introduced her, and the first uh, story is is on the uh, uh, takes place on the Unispan at Hudson University, right. which is actually the Unispan at Hofstra where I graduated. Right, right. Every ten years or so after that, I'd get a call from somebody at the Hofstra, the the student newspaper, saying. You know, I just came across this issue of Batman Family where Robin's on the Unispan. Was, was that inspired by Hofstra and, and our Unispan? And it's like, well, yeah, I graduated from Hofstra. <laughs> oh, and then they'd run an article in the newspaper about the alumnus. What they finally did, Hofstra in the, within the Unispan now, on the walls of the Unispan, has a whole panorama of famous graduates and and. Uh, different things that happened. There is actually a panel for the Unispan. Awesome. Let me see if I can swing because I have I got a, a print of it and put it on the door. I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> that yeah, there. I can see it. That's oh so cool. yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. So that is the the that panel is actually on the wall in the Unispan. Uh, so after putting the Unispan in the comic, the, they put the comic in the Unispan. Yeah, so then I worked as Julie's assistant for uh, about three years and then moved over into the production department as the uh, assistant production manager. The continued writing at that point. Writing was all freelance, so that was separate from, you know, the day job. Now, were there rules, like, did you have to submit to different editors? or Because most of your stuff was in Julie's books, was it not? Yeah. Yeah, it was, well, it wasn't. There weren't any rules, but it was basically if you had a connection with one of the the editors, that's who you that's who you went with, who you worked for. I mean, I always wished I had gotten a chance to to do some stuff for Murray Boltonoff, but there was never any crossover where I had an opportunity to you know submit stuff to him. As I recall, just from reading things that I've read, that their sort of fiefdoms at DC were pretty separate at that time, right? Yeah. Yeah, there were very few artists that, that were shared. Julian Murray shared Dick Dillon for a while, and they go back and forth sometimes about, I need a Justice League, I need a World's Finest, I need a Justice League, I need a World's Finest. Interesting, interesting, that's cool. You know, for the most part, it was Julie's group of, of writers and artists, and Murray had his, and Joe Kubert had his, and Joe Orlando had his, and you know, it, was, it wasn't until the younger guys started getting promoted into editorships where they started like, oh, I'll go ask Bob to do this or I'll go ask this guy to do this, you know, and they, they would swap back and forth a bit more. Interesting. And certainly as, you know, we were the next generation, we were all looking out for one another. And it right. was like, hey, I need a story. OK, I got an idea. I'd love to know a little bit more about your time in the production department because, you know, we don't hear much about that. What drew you to that? Was it just to have the steady income so you could do your creative stuff on the side? I mean, what, what drew you to? There was some some turnover in the, in the editorial, among the editorial ranks, and it was an opportunity to get out of editorial and move into production, which I felt was probably a bit steadier. I had been the editor-in-chief of the yearbook at Hofstra for three years. So I had a background of, you know, an understanding of printing and, you know, the, the, the basics of, you know, the back end of publishing magazines and books. So the first thing that they had me doing in, in addition to assistant production manager, I became the proofreader. So I was proofreading everything. That's how I came up with the idea for the Daily Planet. 
so yeah, we have to go there. Tell us more about the Daily Planet. So it was your idea to start? It was my idea. I, I came up with a, a, why don't we have a weekly thing? I mean, they used to had in the 60s, they had the direct currents direct thing currents. that had what was coming out. And even before that, in like Mort's books, he had the coming super attractions, you know, with the, the two or three issues that were coming next week kind of thing. And it was like, I'm reading everything. So I know what's coming in, in you know, next week's books. I came up with the idea of doing it as a newspaper and just taking one of the books and saying, okay, this is the, the lead story and then a couple of others and then just the listings for whatever else was coming. And so I did the mock-up of the first one and went to Saul and said, what do you think about doing this as a regular ad page? He said, okay, that's good. Let the editors know, or he told the editors at a, at a staff meeting. From that point, I think Saul decided that the editors were watching what I was doing, and the editors decided Saul was watching what I was doing, and basically <laughs> no one was watching what I was doing because I was deciding what was going to be the lead story and what issues you know I thought were more interesting than the other ones, and I was laying it all out and doing all the, the setup, and there was nobody editing what I was writing. <laughs> So it was like, okay, this works for me. So I think that I did some mini puzzles in the first Daily Planets, then did Lola Barnett's gossip and, you know, some other stuff like that. At some point, I, I was still getting letters. Any, any mail that came in that nobody knew the answer to, they give to me. <laughs> he knows what it, he'll answer. It. He'll send them the postcard with the answer on it. So I decided, why don't I put this in the Daily Planet? Okay, there you go. And that's how I created the Answer Man thing. And the first few weeks, I didn't put any names. I just put the question. And then I realized that one of the things I really liked about writing letters was finding my name in a comic. So why don't I put the names of the people who sent the letters right. in the comics? Then I started getting tons of them. <laughs> I got more mail than everybody else in the company. They come in and give me a stack like this. Here's your today's mail. And, you know, questions about everything. Because yeah, here's an opportunity to get your question answered, number one. But also, you get your name in the comic. And usually two or three or four comics, because the page was repeated in a number of books. Was it easier when it went to the dollar comics and then was three pages because you had more pages? Or was it worse because you had more pages to fill? I don't remember it being any any different. It was just like, okay, there was more to fill, but it gave me an opportunity to put some more stuff in there and, you know, expand some of the stories and kinds of things. By that point, we also had Hembeck running. Mm -hmm. That was the, he was the only one that ever got paid for a Daily Planet page. Oh, <laughs> I had to get special approval from Saul. I think we paid him $15 a page for his strips. Okay. <laughs> that was just included in your regular. Uh, yeah, duty. that was in my budget. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so here they were, they're getting, you're getting a free house ad page for, for 15 bucks. But to the number of questions the answer man was getting, spun off into the separate answer man pages mm -hmm. you know once they started doing those profiles it was like okay two-thirds of the page is the answer man the other third is the the profile, profile. okay i was gonna answer that yeah it's easy to say you were the wikipedia of the time but we knew that you were always correct and right <laughs> and had the real information well the thing was too i had the access to the dc libraries you know there was stuff i well, i don't know what happened in the 1944 issue of this but i can go look and I also had the advantage of Nelson. Nelson had a photographic memory. He knew more trivia than I did because he remembered everything. There was one time I was plotting a story with Julia. I think it was a Batman or a Robin story. And I said, I want him to be able to do this. 
Julie said, well, has he ever done that before? And Nelson's sitting there and he just goes, wait, gets up, opens up the filing cabinet, pulls out the issue, opens it to the page. And he did it right here. <laughs> wow. I was like, wow. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think there were many occasions where I had to go to Nelson and say, do you remember this at all? But every now and then it was nice to have that backstop of, oh, yeah, or no. No, or things like that only appeared in a letter column. <laughs> wow. One of them was there was a mistake in one of the Superboy books where Martha Kent referred to her family as the Hudsons. And somebody wrote in and said, her family wasn't the Hudsons. They were the Clarks. They were the Clarks. And so I don't know whether it was Nelson who wrote the letter column or Mort that actually wrote it and said that, well, no, Hudson wasn't her maiden name. It was her middle name <laughs> from the previous generation, her maternal side with the Hudson. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, the only place that that information appeared is in a letter column covering a mistake. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> if you want to know, Martha's maternal family were the Hudsons. Whatever her mother's name was, she married Mr. Clark. It's not a mistake. It's a story opportunity. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and maybe Hudson University was named for them who knows right <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's true they were a very wealthy family and they endowed a college <laughs> want to move on to batman family sean yeah how did you start writing for batman family was that your idea because you were doing the robin stories and they started out as the first issue special or did someone come to you and say they had started doing batman family and so was moving the batgirl stories and the robin stories out of detective it was alternating the team-ups and then a new story of one and a new story of the other so elliot magan was doing the batgirl stories at the time right so that's why he wrote the first couple ones he wrote the first team up and then i think the second one was a team up as well the second one was the uh, island of a thousand thrills right and then the third one i think is when we did he did the batgirl story and i did the robin story that was the christmas story yeah yeah, yeah. So then we started splitting, and then I think he moved over to do more Superman stuff or something, and I started doing the team-ups. Got it. And then when they went from the one story and the reprints to all new material, it was like, okay, well, I'll write the Batgirl story and the, the Robin story, and we'll put Man Bat in, and I'll write Man Bat too. <laughs> oh, and then I'll team them all up. That was my introduction to Man Bat. So when I see him as a villain, especially like a 100% villain, I'd always, uh, that doesn't sit right because he's a detective yeah. and he has his change pills in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> now, were you a fan of Batwoman? And that's why you brought her back? Well, I had read the Batwoman stories, you know, early on when they, they first appeared. And it just seemed logical. I mean, the character hadn't disappeared from the, the face of the earth. And it was like, why not bring her back? And Julie was like, okay, bring her back. And if, you know, we get a positive response, we'll use her again. I mean, that's basically how a lot of the characters come back. It's like, what about this one? You know, I mean, when I did the Titans West, right. you know, it was like, okay, well, who we got? We got Batgirl and we got Beast Boy and we got Hawk and Dove, and who else can we throw to the West Coast and say, oh, now they're going to join together? I actually read that issue last night, and I was like, wow, this is a motley crew, wasn't it? <laughs> but you made it work. I loved it. That era, your era of Teen Titans, was the one I grew yeah. up with. I mean, I enjoyed it tremendously at that time. It's a great idea, Titans West, which that idea is carried through. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. And had they not canceled the book, we were going to split them into two separate groups. Mm-hmm. And I was going to juggle them around a little bit. Batgirl was going to come to the East Coast. 
Sure. And I was going to set up kind of a three-way romance, Robin and, and Batgirl and, and Duella. Well, and, and Lori. <laughs> and Lori, yeah. And Babs, I mean, we... Yeah, and Babs, who he was lusting after all that time. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about before you got on about how today, you know, Dick is the reputation of being quite the ladies' man. And I think you're the guy who started that, I if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think so too, Probably. Yeah. The one thing I was going to do was Kid Flash was going to be a member of both. <laughs> That's cool. Because he was in Central City and could run either way. <laughs> so, all right, I'll go visit these guys today or I'll go visit those guys today. But unfortunately, they decided that they were canceling the book and that was that. What were your experiences with the DC explosion and then the implosion? Was there a worry at DC about going under or what was what was the mood with that there was a lot of concern about what was going on i mean the whole plan for the explosion with all of the the new features and everything and you know hiring some more editors and more staff and obviously lots more work for freelancers and then the the back-to-back blizzards in new york that basically crippled the shipping of the books that prompted the people upstairs in warner publishing to say Oh, you're not selling anything. You got to cut all this back. Right. It's like, really? Are you looking at where this came from? And and no, they weren't. They were just saying, oh, you sold you know twenty percent fewer books. Yeah, because you never got them shipped out of the warehouse. Because we haven't gotten there yet, but obviously, you know, when Batman Family went over to Detective, we call it in our little vision statement for the show that Batman Family rescued Detective Comics. It did. The implosion. It uh, did. They were originally going to cancel Detective Comics because Batman Family was outselling it. Mm-hmm. And somebody, I think it might have been Paul Levitz, who said, you realize that the company is named after Detective Comics and that maybe we shouldn't cancel that and just move the Batman family into Detective Comics. A brilliant move, right? I mean... Which is, you know, what they did. But in terms of, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're going from all of this expansion and we're cutting you back to 20 books a month. One of the things that I regret doing when we found out we had to cut back and cancel things, one of the, the things that was on the list was Secret Society of Supervillains, which I was writing. The next issue was the first part of what was going to be the long battle between the secret society and the justice society and the whole thing with the freedom fighters crossover. And that book had already gone to the separator was in the process to get printed. And I went to Jeanette and I said, listen, this is the first part of a multi-part story. Maybe you want to cancel the book with the previous issue. And they said, "Mm, yeah, probably not, not a bad idea. Now, of course, had I really thought about it, had that issue been published, eventually I would have gotten to write. Finish the story. They would have finished the story because the next issue was already drawn and penciled and inked. And the following one was penciled. I was always working ahead. You know, I would. it would have been, okay, here it is. It, it wouldn't have waited 35 years till they did the hardcover collection. Yeah to put in the missing issues. Interesting. Yeah, that was a that was quite a title, The Secret Society. That was a ride. <laughs> Reading that, all the different villains that would come in. Oh, I, I love that book. And even now I read it like every four or five years just because it's so much fun. Well, it was funny too because, you know, as we kept changing, right, I had the, the stint in the middle and then Jerry came back and then Jerry left again and it was like, all right, you got it now again. And it was like, okay, he was going in one direction and I was going in another. And in the first one that I wrote, I think I blew up the whole first four issue plots in like eight pages and like right, that's done kaboom <laughs> now we're going on to something else i mean i always looked at that as what kind of crime do i want to commit and a mission impossible thing who would i pick right yeah. <laughs> You know, and there were limits in terms of, oh, well, this villain is being used here or that one. You can't use this one, that or. But, you know, in terms of particularly the second string guys, it's like, 
yeah, I can have a dozen of these guys show up. You know, hey, the, the concept has worked, right? I mean, they just call it Suicide Squad yeah. now. Right? Yeah. Yep. So I have to ask you, one of my favorite characters growing up was the calculator. Okay. Uh-huh. I loved the fact that he battled each of the separate heroes through those first few issues. And then they all came together. The whole Justice League came together in that last issue. I just thought that was super cool. Marvel was doing a lot more of the sort of multi-issue storylines. And here you are, you're doing a multi-issue storyline in a backup. Did you have to convince Julie about that? Or was there any, talk to me about how that all worked. Basically, I mean, each one of those stories stands alone. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the things Julie Julie demanded as an editor, that if you got six pages, I want a six-page story. If you've got eight pages, I want an eight-page story. If you've got 18 pages, I want a story with a whole bunch of subplots because you got a lot of space. So I, I went in with the idea that, you know, we had the rotating characters in the back. And I came in with the idea of what if we had the one villain fighting each one of these characters? Mm-hmm. And my ultimate plan, of course, was to build up to him fighting Batman, because then I could write the lead feature. Clever. <laughs> so the character initially that I came up with, I called him the juggler. The juggler? Oh, I didn't know that. The juggler. Because the gimmick behind him that you saw in the first, at least in the first few, was that his idea was to steal something at the moment it was most important and most valuable. And the example I gave Julie was he steals the bride's wedding dress 10 minutes before the wedding because that's when it's the most valuable. Julie, he didn't really like the idea of the juggler because he thought this is what he's going to juggle things and throw balls. Yeah. He said, well, how does he figure this out? I said, well, he calculates, you know, the odds. And then he says, a calculator. Ah, okay. And so from that, we came up with the idea of, you know, almost the, the Green Lantern kind of thing with beep and, and things shoot out of the, the helmet. Yeah. Yeah. That was how the calculator was created. And then we did the Atom and then Black Canary and then um, Man. Elongated Man and then Green Arrow and then um, Hawkman. And then finally, the Batman with the, the whole rest of the characters. Yeah. Which was the first Marshall Rogers, Harry Austin, Batman, not the Steve Englehart stuff. Right, 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 right. And I remember Julie and I going to Vinnie Coletta, who was the art director at the time, and saying, we want Marshall to draw this story. And he was like, I don't know if he's good enough for this. And he's like, we want him to draw this Batman story. And Vinnie finally gave in. And- the rest is history. Yeah. So many of the things that we've talked about are like like classic just so many years old we remember them funny why do you think it is right now you know we're talking about these on a podcast which was unfathomable back when you were writing (laughs) why do you think they're still around in our heads and our hearts really i think because we are a generation who remembers those books i think that they are far more memorable than the stuff that's being published today there's no complete stories anymore. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, here's part 37 of a 49 part story that spreads over 22 different titles. And it's like, okay, what is this story about? I have no idea what's going on here. As I said, Julie demanded, if you had six pages, I want a six page story. Wasn't he the one that said every comic book is somebody's first? Uh, it was either he or, or Mort, but they probably both took credit for it. But in any case, <laughs> somebody back then said that, you know, you got to realize, which is why in Julie's books and pretty much in all the rest of them as well you always had an introductory bit to the characters in the first story of the issue 
an explanation of the powers, an explanation of the basic background. Somebody didn't know it before, and to pick it up and well, who are these characters? You know, I don't, I don't have any idea what's going on here. In regards to working for each specific editor, were there any characters that you would have loved to have written at the time, but either didn't or couldn't? I always wanted to write the Justice League. And I never got the chance. So, I mean, the closest I got to writing Justice League was when I did the, the Superstars baseball game. Oh, I love that one. So do I. I hate sports and I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that was that was the one book that I never got the chance, even when Julie was editing it, because it was Carrie and Elliot and it was Jerry Conway. And I think Marty Pasco did a few. And it was just like, what about me? What about me? He was like, you got all this other stuff. Keep writing that stuff. I tried to get some Justice League kind of things into when I did Secret Society, you know, tried to shoehorn Captain Comet into, you know, with Hawkman and the JLA satellite and that kind of thing. But it was that was as close as I ever got. <laughs> Away from comics, what are some things that you're passionate about? This is your chance to run and not talk comics for as long as you want. Do you like baking or music or horseback riding or i like playing volleyball i used to like playing softball but i can't run anymore so <laughs> i had to give that up but i can still play volleyball i enjoy teaching writing classes i've been working for the johns hopkins center for talented youth since my son was a student in the program in 1993 teaching a creative writing class uh, every summer for them i started teaching a class on comics and graphic novels at farmingdale state college oh wow cool Four years ago now. So I do that every semester. And what kind of enrollment do you get for that? Do you get people who don't know anything about comics or only the comics kids? I get a whole range. I, I usually get a couple of diehard comics fans. Mm -hmm. And then I get somewhere like, I need one more humanities class and this <laughs> looked like it would be good. It's a Friday night class. So it's like, you got to really want to yeah. come. <laughs> It's not going to be, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 11 to 12. It's Friday from 6 o'clock till 8.30. I do a, uh, a combination of the, the whole history of the genre and following it from the, the early comic strips all the way through to the current stuff with a creative writing part where you're creating characters and creating scenes and ultimately their final project is writing a portion, at least, of a comic book script. I'm not sure if you can answer this. What is your sense of how much kids today understand and know about the past? Because it would be easier for them because they have the internet. But is that interesting? By kids, you mean the kids who are regular comics readers? Yeah. I think, unfortunately, they don't know as much as they should or could. I mean, I, I think back to when we were kids and just the idea that there were comics before we started reading them. I had a couple of cousins who were older than I was who had older comics. And, you know, I'd go and visit them and say, wow, this is an issue of Superman from before I started reading it. I inherited a lot of those from them when they stopped reading comics. Like, oh, yeah, you still read them here. You can have these. Wow. So, you know, I plugged in a lot of late 50s and very early 60s holes in my collection with stuff that my cousins had. But I think that there really isn't the interest or the, the understanding. I think, you know, even the ones that are watching the movies and watching the CW TV shows don't realize how much of this came from the 60s and 70s. This isn't stuff they just invented for TV in 2018. They went back and dug this out of comics from 40, 50 years earlier. The interesting part is that that's the stuff that has lasted over the decades as opposed to the later stuff. I mean, look at the comics of the 90s and the 2000s and what is there of note? 
by either Marvel or DC. You got to put aside things like The Walking Dead and, you know, I mean, the stuff that has come from the independents. And I can't blame the guys who create it because if I came up with this great idea, why would I give it to DC or Marvel where they're going to keep most of it? Right. As opposed to, this is mine and I'm going to get the big pile of money, you know, which I think is part of the reason that everything that they're doing in DC and Marvel is a retread of something that's been done nine times before. Some of the characters, it's like, okay, you haven't even reinvented the character in the last 40 years. But even among the fans, in terms of recognizing that there was two generations of creators before the current crop of big name stars who created all of this stuff. I was at a a New York Comic Con probably about 10 years ago or so, maybe a little longer. There was an artist alley set up and one part of it was the old timers and Carmine was there and and Frank McLaughlin and Hubert and half a dozen other of the guys who started in the late golden age and into the silver age and, and the bronze age. And the other end of it was the hot artists of the week. The crowd is all down at the other end, trying to get the autograph of this guy or that guy because he drew last month's issue of Spectacular Cheese Man. The only people talking to the old timers are guys like me and Paul Kupperberg and Jack Harris and Marty Pasto. And it's like, we're the ones talking to the old guys because we recognize that we wouldn't be here if you weren't. We know you started it and we got to pick up the pieces. But there's no recognition from that next generation that, hey, there's all those guys who did this before we did. I mean, it's more of an attitude of almost, well, they didn't know what they were doing. That's why we have to do it now. And our way of doing it is so much better. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't think so. (laughs) No, I hear you. Well, one of the things we do on the show is we talk about some of the old creators and try to bring some attention, if you will. I really think that, you know, you've got to look back and say, you know, these are the the guys who did it. And one of the things that was great when we came into the business was, well, now we're getting our stories drawn by Kurt Swan and Carmine and Qbert and all these guys that they drew the comics we read. Now they're drawing comics we're making up. Which is really neat. Yeah. Which was really, you know, something. And, you know, I mean, I have it now with, with the students in my class and they're like, well, did you know Stan Lee? Oh, like, yeah. Well, but you mean like you really knew him? It's like, yeah. I mean, he did things before he was in a cameo in every Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he did. You know, it's kind of sad that they don't appreciate what was done, but also they're missing out on reading a lot of great stuff. The good news is a lot of this stuff is coming back in print. You know, a lot of these omnibus, we always cite where these books are being reprinted and they're all reprinted in the Robin omnibus and the Batgirl omnibus and this one and that one. And they're all accessible on the digital platform. So hopefully people start to read them. I mean, Sean and I are rediscovering, for example, these golden age Alfred stories, Uh which are so charming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're we're just about running out of the reprint material because our next one is the last one that had a reprint and then it'll be all new stories, uh, which is great. We love the all new stories, but we have really enjoyed the reprints as well. Yeah, they were a lot of fun, particularly being able to read some of the stories of the, the 40s characters. It's like, I didn't know there was an airwave, you know, <laughs> didn't know who this character was or that character was. Yeah, you laugh. Your airwave was, that's where I discovered it from yours. So that's cool. Now, before we go, is there anything you want your fans to know about? Any appearances? Can they still take your class? (laughs) 
Well, yes, if you're enrolled at Farmingdale State College, you can take my <laughs> class Friday nights. Actually, class starts in two weeks. The only convention I will be at in the near future is Uticon, which is in Utica, New York, October 2nd. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure I can, sp I can speak for Paul to say like, oh my gosh, literally, I think my heart has been pounding this entire time <laughs> listening to you. <laughs> like, this has just been amazing for me. And I appreciate you spending your time with us talking about this. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad to do it, hoping that a lot of people will tune in and see it. Yeah, Bob, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We think the world of your work. We've been really enjoying it, re enjoying revisiting it and talking about it. And so we really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.